Why are you always so needy? Welcome to the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire, your host from ToLoveHonorAndVacuum.com, where we like to talk about how to make marriage less of a to-do list and more of a passionate adventure. And today, I want to talk about that question. Why is it that so often we feel like our spouses are so terribly needy or that they feel that we are so terribly needy? We all have emotional needs, things that we just need in order to feel emotionally healthy and complete. All of us have that. It's not a bad thing. Emotions are good things. And so today I want to look at how we can help fill up our spouse's love tank, like how we can help them feel as if their emotional needs are getting met. And then I also want to look at how this understanding of emotional needs can be used to help us resolve conflict. I was talking about this this week on the blog. We're trying to get super practical in the month of June um, and look at specific things that we can do to help feel closer in our marriage. Just little things that we can incorporate into our lives, which can help us feel close. Because what often happens is that this drift starts and often that drift is just from basic misunderstandings. But because you feel misunderstood, the heart of misunderstanding often is that we feel unloved when your spouse doesn't understand you, when your spouse attributes things to you that you didn't really mean, uh, when your spouse overlooks something that is really important to you, you feel as if your spouse is actually rejecting you. That leads to you feeling unloved, which often leads to us distancing ourselves emotionally from our spouse because we're angry, we're hurt, we don't want to get hurt again. But then what we can do is build up these emotional walls between us, these emotional walls of distance, and you can feel as if your spouse doesn't get you at all and like your marriage is really growing apart. So what exactly are emotional needs? We have all kinds of them. And in the post yesterday, I listed some of them. Some of us have really deep needs just for sexual fulfillment and to feel sexually desired. Our sexuality is really tied up into our sense of self. Some of us have deep needs for physical touch, deep needs for affection, uh, deep needs for encouragement and affirmation. But, and these sound a lot like love languages. It's not just love languages. There's an element of emotional needs in the whole love languages thing. But I, I'm talking about emotional needs, which while there's five love languages, there's probably 20, 30 different kinds of emotional needs. But um, one of my big ones is for security. I just need to feel like Keith is always going to be there. Like if I'm going into battle, he's going into battle with me. Like I'm safe and I don't have to worry and I don't have to be hyper vigilant. Uh, that's something big that I have. His is more for encouragement. There's also needs for like shared hobbies, shared activities. You know, you feel like you're super close, like your marriage is, is good on a good place when you're spending a lot of time together doing things. Some of us have a deep need to feel like we're partners, like we're in this together. We're a team. We do housework together. We parent together. You just want someone to go through life with together, to feel like you're on the same page, making goals, making dreams, that kind of thing. Others of us may see health as a big value. It translates, I care about you. When I look after myself and when you look after yourself, it's like we're saying, I care about you and I connect with you. So whether that's spiritual health and wanting to relate on a spiritual level or the pursuit of physical health, 
we want to have our spouse on the same page with us because it's such a big value to us. We want our spouse to treat it like a big value too, because this is something that really matters. And if they don't, then we always feel like there's something missing. And there's so many other kinds of emotional needs as well. Uh, There's a handout that you can get on the description for this podcast and on my blog post for this podcast. So don't feel like you have to write all these things down, okay? Just go over there and you can download that handout. But here's what's important to remember. We all have needs if we're going to feel loved and close to our spouse. And when those needs are not met, we flounder. We feel so distant. We feel rejected and unloved. And in her marriage, this honestly has cropped up a lot. I think for the first 20 years, we're over this now, but literally for the first 20 years, the biggest disagreement that Keith and I would have is that he always felt like I didn't care about his feelings. And I could never figure out why, because in my mind, I obviously did. I really loved this man. And so how could he be so needy that he wouldn't pick up on the fact that I obviously loved him? But you see, the way that we expressed this love was really different. He just wanted me to listen, you know, to show sympathy for him, to allow him to be emotional when he was hurt. But instead, I would often jump in and try to fix things. So in our relationship, the genders are really reversed. Often we think that, you know, men are the ones that are trying to fix things and women are the ones who just needed to listen. And in our marriage, it honestly was the opposite. A lot of that is like the MBTI thing that we were talking about last summer, uh, the, the feel versus the thinker. Keith is very much a feeler. I'm very much a thinker. And I was just trying to win the argument often. I was trying to get the argument over with and try and just so that we could get back on the same page because I couldn't figure out why he was so hurt. But here's what's interesting. My own reaction whenever Keith was hurt was really based out of an emotional need that I had as well. You see, I need security. I need to know that Keith is always there for me. And when he was unhappy about something, that would set off alarm bells in my mind. I would feel like, oh, he's going to leave me or he might pull away from me. And so in my mind, and this is going on at the subconscious level, it's not like I was consciously planning or thinking this, but in my mind, if I could convince him that he wasn't really unhappy or that he had no reason to be unhappy, then we could get on with things. He'd have no reason to leave me. He'd have no reason to be upset. And then things could just be a lot better. Now, I was being really counterproductive here. Uh, and I, I totally own this. We just had to understand that we had very different needs. And I had to learn to take a deep breath and just listen to him. And when he was hurt about something, I had to acknowledge that it was okay if he was hurt. That didn't mean that he was overly needy. And I had to actually change some of my behavior. So instead of trying to win the argument and convince him that he was wrong to feel that way, I had to listen to him. But again, both of these things were based in our own innate needs, my need for security and his need for encouragement and affirmation. So where do these needs come from anyway? If we all have these emotional needs, where do they come from? Well, all of us have all of the needs. I mean, if you were to look at a big list of emotional needs, you'll say, yeah, I need all those things. And we do. A healthy person needs all of those things. Okay, we need to feel connected to people. We need to feel encouraged. We need to feel affirmed. We need to feel safe. We need to feel like we can trust someone. We need to feel like we're partners. That's all what marriage is. You're supposed to have all of those things. 
but some needs are going to be greater than others in all of our lives. Again, Gary Chapman talks about this in terms of love languages, and that may be an easier way or a more familiar way for you to think about it, and that the ways that we experience love tend to be the ways that we automatically and naturally want to show love. But if your spouse experiences love in a different way, then if you try to show them love in your way, it's not going to compute. Well, in a similar way, we all have different emotional needs. And these needs can be based on just our innate personalities, like the thinker-feeler thing. But sometimes they're, they're based on, there's areas of our lives which there's just some pain there. There's a bit of brokenness. And where there's brokenness, there's often a greater sense of a need. That doesn't mean that you are less than. It doesn't mean that you're immature. It's just everybody has life experiences that are going to affect us in different ways. In those particular areas, the air is just a little bit thinner. You know, the scab is just a little bit thicker. There's just some things that we're going to need that are going to, it's going to be easier to prick us in those ways. My own need for security really comes from my father leaving, I think, when I was very young. He walked out uh, before I was two years old. There were several years where, you know, my mom was just naturally going through a really tough time trying to rebuild her life. Uh, She had to get a job. We had to return from a foreign country where we had been living. We had to return to Canada. She had to go out and work, which she was always intending to stay home with me. So this was very difficult for her. So she's going through a really hard time. And there's little me. (laughs) And life was just tough. So I felt like I always had to be hyper vigilant. Like in a certain way, I had to care for myself. Now, my mother was awesome. She really was. But you do feel to a certain extent like you're going through life unprotected when a parent leaves. And so I was more hyper vigilant. I was trying to grow up way too fast. And when you try to grow up too fast, it's like you're trying to take responsibility for yourself very early. And that can leave you with this feeling like I really am alone in the world. And so what I really need from Keith is for him to tell me, no, you're not. And let me tangibly show you that you're not. Now, when you combine that with one of my personality traits, where I have this real need for justice, when I see that things are wrong, I want to fix them. I'm an ENTJ in the Myers-Briggs terminology. And ENTJs are the ones that look for ways things are being done badly and try to find a better way to do it because we can always improve on stuff. And when things don't make sense, we get really upset. and so I'm, I'm always getting upset at stuff. And that's why I often go on these rages on the blog and these rants, which often many of you actually enjoy. Um, but then I, I jump in with both feet when I'm upset about something. When I wrote about the Love and Respect series in January, and I'll be doing a podcast on that soon too, um, on what happened when I approached Focus on the Family about Love and Respect. But when I did that, I jumped in with both feet because I was so upset. And when I do that... I need Keith to be beside me saying, I'm fighting this battle with you. And that's hard for him because his personality is not like that at all. He's someone who likes order and who likes things to be done the way they've always been done. And I'm someone who's always trying to upset the apple cart. And not just that, I want him to upset it with me. 
I want him to say, yes, I am, I am there. And so as I'm marching into battle, I want him almost to be in front of me. And that's a very difficult thing for us to work out as a married couple. So there's my, our natural personalities interacting with our emotional needs. And suddenly, you know, things can get really messy. And so this is where understanding emotional needs can prove very helpful in your marriage because it often identifies these places where you often feel like we're not connecting. You don't really care about me. And the root of it is often a need, either from brokenness or from our natural personalities. If I look at my youngest daughter, Katie, it's so funny because she has such a need for physical touch and for affection. And I often wonder if that comes from the very first 10 minutes of her life. So let me tell you about Katie's birth. When Katie was born, and it was a difficult labor, uh, she was born at about 5.30 in the morning, and an obstetrician came into the room who we had never met before and who was obviously very harried. My husband is a pediatrician, and he was present at many, many births. He would do resuscitations. He would do all of these things. He was very, very, very familiar with the proper protocol when a baby is born in any kind of distress. There's something called meconium, which is when a baby being born actually has a bowel movement on the way through the birth canal and uh, or even earlier. And the problem with that is that if they take their first breath, when there is um, meconium in the amniotic fluid or in any fluid, then that might be in their mouth. And then when they take their first breath, once they're born, they breathe that in and it can really damage their lungs. So when a baby is born, you can often see if there was meconium. And if there was, it's very important to suction them out, suction their lungs out before they breathe so that they don't breathe anything in. So Katie was born and it was obvious that there was meconium. And so this doctor goes to suction her out. Now you can imagine if this is the very first thing that happens to you when you're born, how traumatic that is. So here's this poor baby getting suctioned out. But what was very interesting about this is that he suctioned her after she had already begun to cry quite a bit. When you cry, you have already breathed. Okay, you've already taken a breath. So at the point where he was suctioning her, it really was already too late, if anything had actually happened. And yet he did it anyway. And so Keith was very perturbed by this, but whatever. So he suctions this baby, and then he takes her and he puts her on this table in the birthing room, like it must have been a good 20 feet from where my bed was. And then he and the nurse walk out. They didn't put any blankets on her, nothing. They just left her on this table. And we were looking at him and we, and we were looking at each other like, what is going on? And Keith went over, picked her up, put blankets all around her, brought her to me, and I was able to snuggle her. Had he not been a pediatrician, I'm not sure that he would have been as forthcoming and as eager to just go pick her up, you know, because often when you're in hospital, you feel like you got to wait for the doctor to tell you what to do, right? But he was a doctor, and he's like, this is ridiculous. So he went and got her. But the simple fact is, for the very first few minutes of her life, she had this massive suctioning done on her lungs, and then she was put naked on this cold table far away from any human contact. And so I have always wondered if the reason that Katie so needs affection is because of this. So we, you know, and it could be that. So when I say that we have emotional needs, I'm not saying that there is some major flaw in you or that 
there's something terribly wrong with you. It's just there's things that happen to us and it means that certain things trigger us in a way that other things don't. And so understanding what are the things that really do make me feel loved, the things that I really need. And here's how understanding these emotions can help you in two specific ways. First of all, I have an exercise that I encourage people to do on understanding your emotional needs and identifying them and then giving your spouse ways that they can meet those needs. So making a list of, let's say, 15 to 20 things that your spouse can do that don't necessarily take a lot of time, but that this is what helps me feel loved. So in my need for security, for instance, one of the things that I tell Keith is if you read the blog post comments on my blog post so that we can talk about them at dinner so that he knows if people have been beating up on me <laughs> and then he can, he can tell me, you know what, they were totally off their rocker. You were totally right. You know, just show me that you're in my corner and that you understand. Or if I'm upset about something, you know, express some righteous anger on my behalf because when I feel like he emotionally is angry as well, then it's like he's in that battle with me. Also telling me that he loves me, that he's never going to leave me, hugging me really tightly. Those things all help me feel secure. And then for him, giving him some encouragement, telling him why I love him, talking about him positively in the presence of other people. All of these things really matter too. So make a list of those things. You can see that in the handout. Again, it's available in the description for this podcast. It is a great exercise to do because when we start doing these things, when we start filling up our spouse's emotional love tank, then you, you don't feel that drift in the same way. But here's another way that this really helps. And I actually talked about this in a previous podcast on episode 11, a new take on resolving conflict. I talked about this one at length. And so you can go and you can listen to that one um, for more information on this. So I'm just going to mention it really briefly right now. But when we're in the middle of a conflict, so let's say that you're having a, a fight over housework. Uh, you think that perhaps he doesn't do enough housework and you feel that he's not contributing enough and he thinks that he does a lot around the house. And so you're having this fight. And when, as soon as we do that, we often get in this win-lose mode where we're trying to prove the other person wrong so that we can win and then the fight will be over. And that tends to be a very counterproductive thing to do because if you are trying to win, it means your spouse has to lose. And if you're the one who always wins in a marriage, it means you're married to a loser and nobody wants to be married to a loser. It's not a healthy emotional dynamic to get into. A much better way to do that when you are in the middle of this conflict is to take a step back and to say, what is it that I actually need right now? And when you take that step back, what you might realize is, okay, what I need is to feel like I have a partner. I need to feel like everything is not on my shoulders. I need some time to myself. Uh, and these are all legitimate needs. Even needing to feel like you're not being taken for granted, like you're appreciated. Because when someone does all of the housework, they are going to start to feel like you take me for granted. But he, at the same time, he might feel, I need to feel appreciated. Uh, I need to feel like my contributions matter. And so when you start talking about what it is that you need, then you can start brainstorming instead and finding solutions to those things. So, you know, maybe the solution is 
that for 45 minutes every night, he takes the kids so that she can have some time to herself. Or maybe he's going to start thanking her for things more. Maybe he's going to take on a certain chore that she really hates, you know, whatever it might be. Um, But as you're talking about your needs, then it becomes instead of a, you need to lose so that I can win, it becomes how can we each meet each other's needs? Uh, And let's brainstorm together. Let's fix this. And when you get into that mode, it's much less confrontation. And it's much more, okay, yeah, I can do this. This is what you need. Let's figure out some ways that I can meet those needs. And when you do that together, resolving conflict just becomes a lot easier. I talk about this a ton in Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. It's a big theme in the book on how we can get out of this win-lose mentality and just learn how instead to meet each other's needs. So I encourage you, pick up that book and figure out what your emotional needs are. Do the project that I've got in the description. It's just a great way to stop those misunderstandings, which often make us feel unloved, and to remember, no, we really do love each other. We just need different things, and it's not that my spouse is needy. It's just that they're different. And when we can get a game plan on how we can start meeting each other's needs, we feel like, yes, I can do this. We feel empowered and the marriage is going to get so much better. Peacemaker versus peacekeeper. They're not the same thing. One addresses conflicts and deals with them. One shoves conflicts under the rug to keep things on an even keel. God calls us to make peace. And sometimes that's messy, even in marriage. That's one of the thoughts in my book, Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. Don't settle for an okay marriage. Get a great one with my book, Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. Got another reader question for us. Okay, this one's a sad one. A woman writes, my husband and I have only been married a short time and I cheated on him twice with the same man who was also married. I did not have sex with him, but we kissed and held each other, and I know that's still cheating. To make it worse, we actually had a connection of some kind. We spoke honestly and openly about our emotions. My husband found out and is extremely hurt because I have never been able to open up to him like I had with this other man. We have a lot of trouble communicating. I've never made excuses for what I did or tried to blame circumstances in my marriage, but I love my husband. I don't want to lose him. I'm just not sure if he'll ever forgive me. He wants to work things out, and so do I, but if he doesn't forgive me, I know we'll never truly be happy. I've tried to do everything he asks of me. I stopped all contact with the other guy. I'm trying to give my husband time and space to deal with it, and I've made sure to be completely honest about my feelings and to do nothing that would give him cause to even think that I could be cheating on him again. My question is, what more can I do? All right, great question. I want to bring out a couple of things in this email. First of all, she's totally right that kissing and holding each other and sharing your deepest feelings with someone else is cheating and that does need to be confessed and it does need to be dealt with. Emotional affairs can often be even more bonding than a physical affair and it is something really serious. I will say though that there is a sense of the grass is greener. Like sometimes it's actually easier to open up to someone else and to communicate more easily with them. And we think that that represents a problem with our own marriage. Oh, why can't I communicate with my husband the way I can with this guy? Look how well I can open up with this guy. But the truth is the reason that you can open up with that guy is because you don't have all the other stuff in your life. Like you don't have the pressures of work. You don't have the pressures of in-laws 
friends and family and all the history that goes on. So just because you can open up with another guy does not mean that you would actually be able to communicate as well with him if you were also married to him and had the same relationship with this guy as you did with your husband. Okay, because that's often where this fantasy starts to grow in our minds and that's often what fuels emotional affairs as we think to ourselves, wow, if I only had this guy, if I only was married to this guy, life would be so much better. But we don't realize that what makes that relationship so close and so easy is that you don't have all the day-to-day pressures that you do have with your spouse. So it isn't necessarily that you can communicate better with this guy. It's just that the relationship is very different. Okay, now as for her marriage, very good sign that her husband wants to work on this. That's amazing. I would say that um, it would be really good to be getting counseling right now from a safe counselor um, to be talking this stuff through. I think that's important. Uh, She's also saying that she wants to be completely honest with him, which is also really important. I would say, however, that there is a limit to how honest you should be with your husband, especially in the case of affairs. Like if it were a physical affair, I think it's important that your husband knows that it happened. I don't think it's important that he knows absolutely everything that you did. My rule of thumb is that you don't want to tell someone something that they can then picture as if they're watching a movie screen. So they need to know details, but they don't need to know exact scenarios. Okay. This wasn't a physical affair, so it's a little bit different, but I would say that some things it's important to keep back just because you don't want to hurt you don't want to harm your spouse even further. And then the last is that, yeah, affairs do take a really long time to rebuild trust. And often the person who has offended has a much easier time getting over the affair and wanting to resume intimacy than the person who has been cheated against. And so you're sitting there thinking, look, I've done everything he wants. I am totally committed to this marriage. Why can't he get on board? But to him, this came out of the blue. You've been dealing with this for much longer than he has. You've been dealing with the fact that, yeah, you had this affair. You were feeling guilty about it. You've had all of these emotions going through you for much longer. And you felt like that your marriage was on rocky ground for much longer. And now you've managed to recommit. You're there, but your spouse isn't. So you really do need to give them time. Time. And yeah, sometimes it takes a lot of time, but this was something that you caused. And so you have to give your spouse that time. Now, should that go on forever? No. And if it's been going on for year after year, then I would certainly say that maybe something more has to happen. But if you're, if we're talking a number of months or even just a year, I would say, yeah, you got to stick this out because you've really hurt him. And then the last thing is just the best way to rebuild a marriage is to go back to what you did well. When you started dating, the reason you kept dating was probably because you were having fun together. When I speak at Family Life Marriage Conferences, Neil and Cheryl Josephson are uh, the co-directors of Family Life Canada. And one of the things that Cheryl says in her women's talk that she and I do together is, all of us know what it means to be a good friend. Because all of us are friends with someone. We all have a bunch of different friends. We've had friends throughout our lives. We don't always know how to do a good marriage. Because that's something you only do once with one person. And so if you're really struggling in your marriage... Put the marriage on the on the back burner for a minute and just say, how can I be his friend? You know, how can we start having fun together again? That's probably what you did when you first started dating is you were having a lot of fun together. So rebuild that friendship again and then chances are the trust will come as well. 
So a bit of a mishmash of a podcast this week. We've been talking about how to meet each other's emotional needs and then what to do if you had an affair. But I want to end on a good note. A couple of years ago, I wrote a post called the 22 player games to play with your spouse. And it just listed some awesome games that you can play as a couple. Keith and I are big board game people. We love playing games. They're super fun. We did it when the kids were growing up. Uh, and we do honestly get in front of screens way too much, mostly because I love to knit. And when I knit, it just is easier to watch television too. But sometimes you just got to get away from a screen and do something fun together. And so for us, games is our big go-to. So I listed a whole bunch of games that we love in that post. And that post um, is pretty big. It's still one of my top 20 posts. So people just keep landing on it and hopefully find some good ways to spend time together as a couple. But I want to do a new one because so many games have come out since I wrote that post. And there's so many games we haven't tried yet. So on Facebook this week, I asked for other people's ideas. And I got some great ones, games that I've never heard of. Apparently, there's one called Goblet, which is like tic-tac-toe, but all grown up. So that's awesome. Um, there's a couple of two-player variations of games that we really enjoy. Uh, one's Bonanza, which is spelt B-O-H-N-A-N-Z-A or Z-A for you Americans. But that's a fun trading game. It's all about beans, which I know sounds weird, but uh, super fun for children. We found I think our kids played it when they were maybe seven or eight. They got all into it. Uh, but there's a two-player variation, which sounds really good. Uh, Apparently, there's a really good Rivals for Catan game, which is a two-player card game variation of Catan, which we just love and we play as a family. My nephew, Alex, just loves Catan, so every time he comes over, we have to play that. Um, a bunch of people mentioned Blockus, which which I'm a big fan of Blockus. We even have some of the discontinued versions of Blockus, like the 3D one and the two-player one really, really good. And we found that was one that kids can do when they're younger as well. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm just looking for more suggestions because I do want to write another one. I figure, you know, this summer, it's a great time to play board games when you're out camping or uh, when you're in the trailer or something like that. And then if you find some that you like, you can incorporate them into your life as the fall begins too. So hopefully I will put that post up soon. So if you have any two-player games that you just love, send me an email, put a comment on my original blog post, and I will put a link to that in uh, the blog post or in the podcast description and the blog post for this podcast as well. But give me some names. We're going to try some of them out. And then I'm going to write another podcast of some even new two player games that you can play and just have a lot of fun because you know what? Marriages need fun and that is all good. That's it for the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast this week. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire, urging you to keep loving your spouse, pursuing your spouse, and have a fun marriage. Remember, if you like this podcast, subscribe at iTunes or anywhere where you listen to podcasts. And please give it a five-star rating so that other people know that this is a great place to go to find marriage advice that isn't all about pat answers. You can find me at tolovehonorandvacuum.com with tons more thoughts for your marriage and, of course, for improving your sex life. See you next time.